There's a great vastness of vision that flows from the Buddha's enlightenment. Of beings wandering through countless lifetimes, through different realms of existence, innumerable world systems, each one with 31 planes of existence, unimaginable immensities of time. And at the heart of this vast cosmology is the possibility of awakening. Probably not too many of us have traveled through these other realms. But a way for each one of us to understand the vastness of this Dharma journey is through the opening to the nature of consciousness itself. Opening to the fundamental nature of our own minds to see how suffering is created and how we can be free, not theoretically, not as philosophy, but really in our moment-to-moment experience. There are many different Buddhist traditions, and yet all of them converge in one understanding of what liberates the mind. And the Buddha expressed it very succinctly. He said, the supreme state of peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself. namely liberation through non-clinging. In other places in the suttas, he said, this is the deathless, what is beyond birth and death, namely liberation through non-clinging. Centuries later, the Indian adept Tilopa taught his disciple Naropa, who in turn was the teacher of Marpa and Milarepa, you know, in the whole, that whole tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. Talopa said to Naropa, you are not fettered, you are not bound by appearances, by experiences. You are bound by attachment. So cut your attachment. I think the lesson for us in these teachings is the understanding that non-clinging is not a state to imagine in some far-off future. It's not as if we practice, 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 and then maybe someday we won't cling. It's the realization that this is our practice now, moment to moment, and that all the techniques, all the methods, all the teachings are serving this end. That is the mind of no clinging, the mind of no craving, no attachment. Our unfolding experience keeps changing. Sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, but the practice of liberation remains the same. We are not practicing in order to have some better experience. 
Let me repeat that. <laughs> we are not practicing in order to have some better experience, however wonderful the experience may be. We're practicing what the Buddha called the heart's release. Freedom is in the non-grasping mind. So how do we accomplish this release of the heart? How do we actualize this for ourselves? One direct way is through the awareness, the refined awareness of impermanence. When we pay close attention, we see that things are changing. We see impermanence on any level we choose to look at. You know, we could think of just the most macroscopic, the birth and death of stars, of galaxies, of clusters of galaxies. All the way down to the energy movements of subatomic particles. More immediately for us, we can see impermanence in all the myriad changes of nature, of the seasons, of the weather, the changing experience in our relationships, in our work, in our bodies, in our minds. Things are changing all the time, and when we pay close attention, it's completely obvious. This is not some obscure truth. There are many situations in our lives which you know, bring home the truth of this to us. One uh, incident stands out for me because out of it came one of my uh, Vipassana mantras. Some years ago I was teaching in New Mexico at this wilderness ranch, Vallecitos, where they teach retreats, they lead retreats for activists, environmental, social, political activists. It's a beautiful place, way out in the middle of Carson National Forest. I was leading a retreat, and on the last day we went for a hike up the river. And coming back, it had just rained, the rocks were slippery, and I slipped on one of the rocks and hyperextended one of my knees. And I, just as I did that, I, I knew something wasn't great. But I managed to you know, be okay walking back. And that night I was giving the closing talk of the retreat. And I had the passing intuition. I give this talk sitting in a chair. But I didn't listen to it. You know, and so I sat down cross-legged. I gave the talk. By the end of the talk I couldn't get up. You know, it's like, it wasn't a great combination. The hyperextension and the sitting cross-legged couldn't put any weight. I had to be carried back to my cabin, which was a little embarrassing. <laughs> and that whole night I was going back and forth between you know, self-recrimination for not being more mindful you know, and just, well, this is what happened. And out of that whole, out of that whole uh, incident, the mantra arose, which I've really used a lot since then. And it is, anything can happen anytime. 
you know, we just don't know because things are subject to change. We think that we're living in this nice, secure, stable world, this nice, secure, stable body, this nice, secure, stable mind. But it's not like that. All the conditions are subject to change. Anything can happen anytime. And what was interesting for me, as this phrase would come to my mind, you know, at different times since then, it didn't come with a sense of foreboding. It actually was this great sense of freedom, this great sense of relief, acknowledging the truth of change rather than living in the pretense that it doesn't happen. It's opening to the truth of it, which actually frees the mind. One of the very strongest aspects of our delusion is that when we look back at our past experience, we can see it, and I think most of us often feel it like this, we can see all of our past experience as something like a dream. You know, where are your experiences of yesterday? Or the day before, or last week, or the beginning of the retreat, or five years ago? You know, whether they were happy or unhappy, it's all part of this dreamlike state. They're not present, they're not here now. Yet in our thoughts of experience to come, even though we know that all our past experience is like this dream, when we're looking ahead to experiences to come, we become enchanted by the possibilities. You know, as if somehow the next experience the next thing we want, you know, the next vacation, the next meal, the next sitting, somehow the next thing that will happen will somehow fulfill all our longings. Why do we believe this? It just must be some massive delusion that we're living in because nothing to date has done it. It's a bit strange. It's through our direct and intimate and close experience of the changing nature that whatever arises will also pass away. That all of our experience, whatever it is in the mind, in the body, inside, outside, that all of it is like the flowing current of a river or water over a waterfall. It's just part of this endlessly passing show. When we see this clearly, and this is really what our practice is about, then we no longer grasp or cling or have so much attachment. The liberating power of seeing the truth of impermanence was expressed 
in a rather startling statement by the Buddha. He said something that, from one perspective, I think is really quite shocking. He said, it's better to live a single day seeing the momentary arising and passing of phenomena. And we're really seeing change on that moment-to-moment level. Better to live a single day seeing this than a hundred years without seeing it. What does this say? What does that statement say about what we value in our lives and where we put our energy? It points to the tremendous power of liberation, of freeing the mind that comes when we are seeing the truth of change. Because in that moment, the mind is not grasping, the mind is not clinging. So in our practice, in the meditation, it's not simply a question of noting and noticing what it is that's arising. That's the first step. We want to be mindful enough to see, yeah, there's a sound, there's a thought, there's a sensation, a breath. But we don't want to stop with the seeing of what it is that's arising. We also want to pay attention to what happens to each of those objects. So we are really noticing, not theoretically, we're noticing directly in our own experience what happens to that sound, what happens to that breath, what happens to that sensation. And we see in one way or another it changes. The sounds disappear, the sensations keep changing, the breath follows, one breath follows the next. And then we look even more closely, and we see that each of these experiences is not a single thing. It's not that there's just one sound. When we listen carefully, that one sound is made up of myriad vibrations, so many changes within what we call a sound, so many microscopic sensations, within what we call one breath. Notice carefully the quality of your mind when you are observing the truth of this change. My experience has been that in the time of highlighting the experience of change, the mind is not grasping. The mind is not holding on. We want to taste that. We want to see that for ourselves, experience that for ourselves. If we're interested in liberation, in freedom, the Buddha gave one very explicit instruction. He said, whatever feelings arise whether pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Contemplate the fading away, the letting go of those feelings. Contemplating thus, contemplating the impermanence, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. 
and when not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana. Very simple, very direct teaching. Contemplate the changing nature of all the feelings. As we do this, we don't cling. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. When there is no agitation, we personally attain Nibbana. Everything we do in our practice, you know, all the tools, the primary object, and mental noting, and the deepening of concentration, and the practice of choiceless awareness, all of this is done in the service of not clinging. But in case we're still missing it a little bit, the Buddha went a little further. And he pointed out those areas where we habitually do cling, you know, in case we're just not seeing it. Both in our meditation practice and also in our lives, we can investigate these areas of clinging and practice the mind of freedom. So one of the first areas, the big areas, where there is habituated attachment, one that's very obvious, is the clinging to the pleasure of sense objects, getting lost in the wanting mind. You know, pleasant body sensations, pleasant thoughts, pleasant feelings, sights and sounds and tastes. We like pleasant things. You know, how often in the sitting does the mind simply get lost in the pleasure of reverie? You know, you sit down and then somehow you lose connection with the breath or the body sensation. The mind just gets carried away in this reverie. And an hour later, kind of wake up. That was a nice sitting. <laughs> you know, went fast. <laughs> but what's particularly strange and a little more subtle is our attachment to being lost in thoughts or images even when they're not pleasant, which can happen a lot. So it's almost like we're attached to the rather dubious pleasure of being lost. You know, we just kind of like being lost. And so we attach to that, even when it's unpleasant. I think this must... This must be why people like to go see horror movies. I mean, it's not pleasant, but they're still selling plenty of tickets. <laughs> Investigating this attachment to pleasant sense experience, when we really look, and there's plenty of opportunity to do that, it begins to reveal a lot about the nature of addiction of fascination, of craving, the power of desire. Now one image which I've used a lot to describe both my own process and I think probably one that's quite familiar to you. You know, just sitting, going along in the practice, watching the breath. It's, it's like kind of rolling down a highway. You know, just cruising along. And then we see a big sign right before an exit 
like a big sign to some amusement park. And it's just whatever our own particular amusement park happens to be. You know, it could be thoughts of a relationship or thoughts of food or sexual fantasy or planning, whatever. So there's this big sign for this amusement park and we take the road, we go down, we play around in the park for a while and then finally we realize and we come back and we get back on the highway. Well, with a little more mindfulness, we're going down the road, we see the sign, we still get off, but we realize more quickly that we're off and we just get back on again. When the mind is really quite alert, going along, we see the sign and we notice that we're seeing the sign and we don't even bother getting off. So one note that I found very helpful in noticing this pattern, this seduction you know, of these pleasant experiences in the mind. Right under the sign for the amusement park, I started putting my own sign, dead end. (laughs) This is just a dead end. You know, it's like, okay, you go down the road, At some point, whether it's a few seconds later or half an hour later, you still just have to come right back, get back on the highway, back to the breath. Why bother going down? It's a dead end. I suggest it as a mental note. For almost everything. (laughs) There's There's another aspect of this wanting mind which is very prevalent in our society. And again, it's interesting just how the mind gets caught in different kinds of clinging, of how we hold on, and we're not even often aware of it. That's what I've kind of coined the phrase, catalog consciousness. You know, and I'm sure you're familiar with the phenomenon. You know, we get these catalogs in the mail, and if we make the mistake of even opening one page of it, it's like the mind gets hooked. You know, and just we keep turning pages, and there may be a catalog, we don't want anything. <laughs> but we keep turning the pages, and what I realized, that really, we're turning the pages because we want to want. We're waiting for something to want. You know, maybe on the next page I'll want something. <laughs> It's a very strong mind that can actually close the catalog and throw it out. It's pretty interesting if there's there's enough mindfulness to actually pay attention to what's going on, to what it feels like, to to being in the grip of that attachment, to being in the grip of that wanting, and the sense of relief. You know, when we finally can throw the catalog out, you know, and it's like being let out of the grip of something. Now there's a subtlety here that I think is worth looking at. Often we become so focused on the object of our desire that we're not seeing or we're overlooking the fact that really what we're after is the pleasant feeling that we think we're going to get from that object. It's not the object itself that we really want. It's the pleasant feeling 
that we're going after. But where this gets tricky is that because we're not seeing that and we think it's the object, you know, the object is really solid and substantial and, oh, if only I have this, then that'll really make me happy. And so we're not seeing so clearly the ephemeral nature. But when we can tune into the fact that it's not really about the object, that it's really about the anticipated pleasant feeling, when we remember that, it's much more likely that we will remember, yeah, the pleasant feeling is very ephemeral. ephemeral. We may get a nice pleasant hit for, for a little bit, but we're less likely to be caught in the thrall of that wanting, of that desire, because we know, yeah, the pleasant feeling will come, it'll be there for a little while, it'll go. We're more attuned to the impermanence of the pleasant feeling than we are to the impermanence of the object. And so it's just kind of dropping down a level to see what it is that we're really going after. Because when we do, it becomes quite a bit easier to see the impermanence of that pleasant feeling and to let it go. Now, all of this doesn't mean that we don't act in the world, that we don't fully experience pleasant things when they come. We can be fully open to the experience of the whole range of our lives. But do it in a way so that desire and the wanting mind doesn't become this driving force in our lives. Because when it is, it cuts off the possibility of freedom. Now there's a useful distinction between detachment and non-attachment. So very often people hear the Buddha's teachings on coming to the end of desire or craving or wanting. And in English we might use the word detachment and it feels pretty gray. You know, it's like a withdrawal from life, just detached from everything, indifferent in a certain way. I think the more operative word is non-attachment, which is not a withdrawal, but a not holding on. Now, in addition to desire for pleasant sense experience of different kinds, and what is perhaps more relevant to you right now is the clinging that can arise to pleasant meditative experience, which is even more seductive. You know, we might get a few moments of lightness and rapture and tingling, calm, of, of real happiness, you know, a deep kind of happiness. What's interesting is that in the progression of the practice, all of the factors of enlightenment, you know, of energy and rapture and calm and equanimity and concentration, at a certain point all become what are called corruptions of insight. Why? Not because they've suddenly become unwholesome, 
But because at a certain stage of practice, these factors can get very strong and we get attached to them. There's one particular stage of insight which is called discerning what is the path and not the path. And this stage happens precisely when we've experienced you know, these quite wonderful meditative states where the factors of mind really have come into balance. The practice is going well. We've gotten caught, we've gotten seduced by attachment to them, but through ongoing practice we slowly wean ourselves from that attachment and we come to that place of discerning what is the path, what is not the path. What is not the path is attachment to these states. What is the path is not clinging. So this is a very important juncture in our spiritual journey, in our spiritual understanding. There can also be a kind of fascination with the unfolding process itself. You know, as the concentration deepens a bit and we are settling in to the flow of our experience, it can get pretty interesting. Even just watching, you know, all the energy knots untying. It doesn't always have to be pleasant, but it can be really interesting and fascinating to see what's happening in this mind and body. We can get so fascinated in the unfolding process that we get caught in what I call the in-order-to mind. You know, we're just watching this in order for this to happen, and in order for this to happen, and we're leaning into the next moment. We can become too attached to subtlety. We can become too attached to over-investigation. So that's another kind of clinging that we should be aware of. Freedom is not in some new experience, but in the mind that is not clinging. So in one way, what we're practicing is disengaging the gears of attachment. So what I'm about to say now could save you endless dukkha if you really let it in. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. And the implication of that is that you don't have to wait for some other experience not to cling to. Well, I'll sit here and my concentration will get really good and my mindfulness gets strong so that I won't cling. Why wait? Why not not cling now? This is very helpful <laughs> if we can remember this. Whatever it is that's arising, it's thoughts, it's feelings, it's sensations, it's opening to it all not holding on, not grasping, not clinging to any of it. That's what we're practicing. But it's just very hard to get that. 
You know, the attachment to experience, the attachment to meditative experience is so strong. One teaching describes the practice of enlightenment as being short moments many times. That's really a good teaching. You know, it's not that even with non-clinging, okay, I'm going to not cling and I'm going to try to sustain this non-clinging now. So that's holding on to not clinging. And so this teaching, just short moments many times. You know, something arises, we relax the mind from grasping. Next moment, relax the mind. So this is the first area of attachment the Buddha pointed out both of sense pleasures and also the pleasures of meditative experience. The second big area of attachment, and one which is the cause of tremendous suffering both personally and in in our interpersonal relationships, and also in the world, is the attachment we have to our views and opinions about things. We're attached to being right. You know the book which you might have seen some years ago by David Brinkley. It was called Everyone is Entitled to My Opinion. <laughs> I think we all basically feel that way. But what's so amazing when we look at our lives, look at our speech, we often have very strong opinions, or some opinions, regarding things about which we know nothing at all. (laughs) And in fact, just this evening at tea time, Guy and I were having a discussion. (laughs) And this monastery in Thailand, we were talking about this monastery in Thailand, and a certain context, and Guy was of the opinion that people at the monastery didn't have single rooms, I was of the opinion that everyone had their own kuti, had their own room. Neither one of us had any idea. (laughs) We had never been there. We had never talked to anybody who had been there. (laughs) But somehow we each just had our own little picture in the mind. It was quite amazing. Fortunately, we saw rather quickly what we were doing. But even that it arose points to this very strong attachment, you know, to these thoughts, to these views, to these opinions that arise in the mind. I think it's really instructive, just as a basic level of wise functioning in the world, to distinguish between what we really know and what we don't in terms of having opinions and views. But then, even to keep an open mind about things where we actually do have some experience. So we don't get so fixated or so attached to our views, even about things where we do have some knowledge or authentic insight. It's very easy to take pride about knowledge. 
It's very easy to take pride about our insights, our understandings. And this attachment or pride in our own understanding, even when it's based on some real experience, it closes us off to other points of view, to other possibilities. And when we're attached in this way, it plants the seeds of tremendous sectarian conflicts. Um, particularly when it's around religious views or religious understandings. Now, this is the truth. Everything else is wrong. Everything else is false. We see the tremendous danger of this, not only in the way we relate to one another, but also in the world today. It's not a trivial attachment. No, it's the cause of tremendous violence in the world. Tremendous violence interpersonally. The Buddha warned against, in the suttas, he warned against this tendency to exalt our own view of truth and to disparage others. I think it's much more helpful when we see that all the views, all the teachings, all the methods are skillful means for liberating the mind. When we take them to be statements of absolute truth, conflict is inevitable because people have differing views. When we see them as skillful means, of all different teachings, as skillful means, does this help to liberate the mind, to liberate the heart? Then it becomes possible to actually learn from one another. So there's attachment clinging to pleasures of the senses, to meditative experience, this clinging and attachment to views and opinions, both about things we don't know and things we do know. The deepest attachment we have, one that deeply conditions our lives and our understanding, is the attachment and clinging to the concept of self. When we look carefully at experience, we see that self, the notion of self, of I, is a concept about an appearance. There's an appearance arising out of the relationship of all these mental physical elements, the elements of the body, the elements of the mind. These elements are in relationship to each other, there's an appearance of them. We designate that appearance self or I and then think that the self or I has some independent self-existence apart from the relationship of these changing elements. The great realization in practice, and it comes just through this awareness of the changing nature of all our experience, is that there is no one behind experience to whom it is happening. Now one teaching which you've probably heard different times during this retreat, it's a very pithy uh, expression of this, where the Buddha said, in the seen there is just the seen, in the heard there is just the heard, 
in the sense, there's sense, smell, taste, touch, there's just the sensed. In the thought, there's just the thought. In each experience, there is just what there is. The I, the notion of I, the notion of self is extra. But even knowing this on some level, whether at first it's just a conceptual level or even a level of some realization, we still have at times a strong felt sense of I. It feels as if there's a self. Even if we know on whatever level that it's just a concept. So the question is, where does this felt sense of self come from? If in fact, it's just a concept, just a designation. The feeling of self arises in all of those moments when we are identifying with various aspects of our experience. The experience is just happening. When we're not seeing clearly and we're identifying with those experiences, in the process of identification, that's where the sense, the feeling of self comes from. So, for example, we very commonly identify with the body. We just have the sense, yes, this is me, this is who I am. But when we look more closely, we see that the body is not something that can legitimately be called self, called I. And when you think of just the changes that take place from infancy, from a young baby, just being born, and then growing into a child, and a young adult, an adult, and then older, and then old age, and then a corpse. I mean, this is the progression, this is the flow of changes of the body. Which one is self? Which one is I? Now, you might have seen autopsies or read about autopsies. Now, in some TV programs, there's some channels of... See, where, where they're actually showing you know, different operations and it's pretty I'd never be a doctor <laughs> but anyway you know when you're seeing from the inside see the organs and the blood and the, you know the bones and the tissue and the, all of that yeah the liver is self I'm the gallbladder <laughs> Stomach is the stomach is I. When we're seeing what's there underneath underneath this nice protective covering of the skin, we'd probably be much less likely to identify with the body. But somehow it's all neatly packaged. Oh, beautiful, great, this is me, this is self, this is who I am. It's just we're not seeing it clearly. Ramana Maharshi had some wise words to say on this. He said, to identify with the body and yet seek happiness. To identify with the body and yet seek happiness is like attempting to cross a river on the back of an alligator. (laughs) Dangerous proposition. But we live in delusion because we're just not seeing clearly. 
So our practice is really to, to look at, okay, what is this body? What is the nature of the body? To really see it as it is. And in that, there's less identification and at some point no identification with it. And in that lack of identification, there is real freedom. We create a felt sense of self when we're lost in or identified with our thoughts. Now, as the Buddha said, in the thought there is just the thought. But no, for most of us that's not how it is. Thoughts come, we identify with it, I'm thinking, I'm planning, I'm judging, I'm remembering, whatever, we add the I and then We identify with all stories that we make up, stories about ourselves, about how our practice is going, stories about other people, how their practice is going. And so we're just, we're lost in these mind projections, like we're living in the world of mental projection. I was just getting this image of an insane asylum. <laughs> you know, we're, we're all just living in our own mental creations. And it's quite, you see, I mean, you've been sitting here now for weeks and weeks and know how much of the time we're just lost in all of this. And what's so amazing is that the only power that thoughts really have is the power that we give them. They have no power in and of themselves, yet they're tremendously seductive. Unnoticed thoughts, as you well know, have compelling, even coercive power in our lives. They're like these little dictators in the mind. And they're just, they're running our lives. Go here, go there, do this, do that. And and yet when they are noticed when they're seen as being just a thought. They're seen as completely empty, transparent, insubstantial. They really are little more than nothing. And so this is quite remarkable. The great Tibetan uh, master, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, was really one of the greatest teachers of the last century, He said, thoughts have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be so enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly as they have been doing throughout countless past lives. So we can see this. And our practice is to see this and to see the amazing possibility of freedom. Notice the difference between being lost in a thought and in that moment of awakening from being lost. And rather than judging yourself for having been lost, really take that moment of recognition and delight in the wakefulness of mind at that point. 
And there are endless opportunities to do this. We create a felt sense of self when we identify with the body, when we identify with the thoughts, when we identify with emotions. I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm whatever. We build a whole monument of self, of I, on top of momentary changing conditions. Can we be with our emotions in the same way that we would sound? When we're sitting and sounds arise and pass away, for most of us probably it's pretty easy to stay in that place of open, empty, space-like awareness. Sounds simply come and go. Can we practice seeing emotions in just that way, like clouds in the sky, clouds forming out of conditions and then dispersing into that emptiness again. So it's not that we don't feel the emotions, we're completely open to them, but not taking them to be I, not clinging, not identifying with them. They're simply arising out of conditions and then passing away. But this is challenging. Very challenging because emotions are usually what we most personalize. You know, they so feel like self. It's interesting to begin to examine the conditions out of which emotions arise because when we see that there are conditioned phenomena, then we don't take them so personally. So just as a simple example, notice how often emotions are conditioned by a particular thought or image. A certain thought or image arises in the mind and it can trigger this powerful emotion within us. Well, just to watch that process, a thought can condition emotion. Emotions are conditioned by our level of understanding. You know what? may leave one person tremendously distressed, may leave another person completely at ease, the same experience. There's a wonderful uh, haiku poem. The barns burnt down, now I can see the moon. My house has burnt down, now I can see the moon. Unlikely that that would be the sentiment. (laughs) But somebody had that sentiment. It's just depending on our level of understanding. We tend to think, well, it's natural for me to be feeling this. It's natural at a certain level of understanding. But it's not about self. It's not about I. It's just about conditions. Given certain conditions, certain emotions arise. Given different conditions, it's a different constellation. Can we see it all? Can we practice that place of awareness where we're feeling it, open to, open to them, but not being identified with them? This is a great freeing practice. We get identified with the body, felt sense of self, get identified with thoughts and emotions, 
creates this felt sense of self. The most subtle level of identification, which gives birth to the sense of I, is when we identify with consciousness or awareness. This is the most subtle. Even when we're noticing all the other phenomena, and the mind and body is changing, is impermanent, to some extent as not-self, still, when we identify with the knowing, it's we're creating that sense of observer, of a witness, of the one who's knowing it all. So something I mentioned earlier in the retreat in part one, but as a review for some of you and a suggestion, a new suggestion for others, one way, one way that I found to be very effective in cutting through this identification with knowing, which goes very deep, you know, it's very hard to get a handle on that, is to reframe one's experience in the passive voice. So, for example, instead of, I'm knowing the sound, or I'm knowing a thought, or I'm knowing the sensation, reframe it, sound being known, thoughts being known, sensations being known. Because when it's reframed in that language, it takes the I out of it. So we're not creating the sense of self even in our languaging. And it's very powerful to, to reframe it. And it's not that one is repeating this constantly in the mind. It's just having that understanding and then being in the immediacy of experience. And the walking can be a very useful place to play with this because the movement and the sensations of the movement are so tangible. You know, you're just walking. And just as a function of walking, sensations are appearing and being known. Just now, maybe, if you don't mind, just move your arms slowly. You know, and just be with that experience in this way. It's just the movement of the arm is happening and sensations are just being known spontaneously, effortlessly. No one there. No one's doing anything. It's all happening by itself. And so we can stay right in this mystery of awareness, right in this mystery of consciousness in the most simple aspects of our experience. And sometimes it's just... (laughs) One could spend a long time just doing this. It, it really is interesting. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of sensations going. Just in that slight little movement, you know, there's a kind of tension and a pulling and a weight and a vibration and tingling and all throughout the arm. And so all of these sensations are just appearing out of no place and they're being known without anyone doing anything. Okay, so then the, then the leading question becomes, these sensations are being known, known by what? So that's where we really get into the mystery of awareness, the mystery of consciousness. Sensations, sounds, thoughts, feelings, everything, the whole world is being known, moment after moment, known by what? 
And then when we look, there's nothing there to find. Now, what is the nature of this awareness? There's nothing there. It's like, it's like empty space. And yet there is this cognizing, knowing function happening. As I said in the guided meditation, this is from one of the Tibetan texts, it is, but it doesn't exist. Well, isn't that remarkable? I mean, this is what's happening moment after moment. You know, and the whole world is manifesting this. But we are so caught up and so identified with the experience that it's very rare to actually step back and investigate and see, well, what is the nature of this mind, of awareness, of consciousness? What actually is happening here? Liberation through non-clinging. We accomplish this through the seeing of impermanence, very directly, very simply. It's happening all the time. Things are simply arising and passing away, moment after moment. To highlight this understanding, to highlight this experience of change. Liberation through non-clinging, through seeing that all experience is empty phenomena rolling on, that there's no one behind it who's having it or holding it or to whom it belongs. In the seen, just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the sense, just the sense. In the thought, just the thought. It's so incredibly simple. It's coming back to this utmost simplicity. The Buddha summed all of this up when he said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever has heard this has heard all the teachings. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. Whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. This is the Buddha's profound instruction to us. It's not a philosophic statement. This is our practice, moment to moment. Sit for a few minutes. The sensations of each breath, the feelings in the body, are simply arising, appearing, and being known, moment after moment.
merit of our practice be dedicated to the awakening, liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.